2: Welcome to the Proust Questionnaire.
3: 35 questions giving us insight into what makes creative people tick.
2: Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Proust Questionnaire. Caroline and I are excited to host two people today, a couple. We wanted to change the format a bit and see how this works, and it was incredibly fun and illuminating. The two writers we're talking to today are Lee Carpenter and Elliot Ackerman. Lee is a novelist whose books, 11 Days and Red, White, Blue, have really made an impact with a lot of people, and Carolyn and I are both great fans. Elliot is a novelist and a writer as well, whose books include Places and Names on War, Revolution, and Returning, and Red Dress in Black and White. Both of them write widely, and Elliot has also recently written about the role of veterans, especially, and the armed forces in national politics. We were so happy to talk to Elliot and Lee today, and we hope you'll enjoy this episode of the Post Questionnaire. Thank you for tuning in.
3: first couple's interview subjects today. A couple in real life and two writers who are both wildly um, envy-producingly gifted and talented, Lee Carpenter and Elliot Ackerman. Welcome to the Proust Questionnaire.
0: Thank you
3: for having us.
0: Thanks for having us.
3: We're filming this during lockdown. I get to see you all on, on Zoom for, for cocktails on Friday nights, and it's nice to see you looking like you're still sheltering in Delaware. Is that correct? Yes.
2: You're sheltering, but you're not drinking right now. So it's nice to see you even without cocktails. Not, not yet.
3: Okay, so uh, we'll begin with the, the, we go in the order in which these questions originally appeared in the late 19th century. And so we'll start off with a zinger. Uh, And Lee, I'll ask this to you first. What is your idea of perfect happiness?
1: My idea of perfect happiness is lying on the bed with Elliot and the children and the dogs and if if not that um (laughs) my second second idea of perfect happiness is skiing first tracks with Elliot on a really how snowy powdery day
3: that's uh, in the heat of summer that sounds especially good I have to say but I like that lying on the bed wasn't followed by watching Netflix or reading a book it's just lying on it just being all of that
1: Silence, everyone on the bed in silence.
3: Elliot, what is your idea of perfect happiness?
4: Well, I would say I would add all of Lee's perfect happiness uh, images to my list, um, but I guess I should add one to be interesting. It mm-hmm. would be sitting down with Lee in the corner table at Elio's or a restaurant we like in New York and I've just ordered the veal milanese. <laughs> 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 really good.
3: It's, has it has it's been a little while, probably, since you've been able to do that.
4: Yeah, not since uh, not since I guess February, so five months. Five months.
2: Um, Elliot, what is your greatest fear?
4: Oh, my greatest fear kind of goes back to my probably my military days, and uh, I've written about this before. It's getting lost. I have a pathology about getting lost, um, and I think that comes from when I was in Iraq or Afghanistan as a young officer and you'd be leading patrols and everyone's sort of following behind you and the idea of having to stop everything and turn around and kind of say like a little weasel, you know, hey guys, I think I'm lost. Uh, <laughs> I, have a, I, have a, I had such a fear of that that when I left the service, I couldn't just shake it off. So when we're driving somewhere or going someplace, like I, I always need to know uh, where I'm going. I have like redundant map software in my phone uh, so yeah, I don't I don't like getting lost but but fortunately, I've gotten pretty good at, at finding my way
1: That's interesting. My greatest fear is loss. Not getting lost, but loss. Losing um, I had a lot of loss And I it's losing losing people that I love. That's my greatest fear
0: mm-hmm.
1: What
3: Lee is the trait you most deplore in yourself? My 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 social anxiety. Okay, you and I have been friends for a long time. I didn't know you had social anxiety.
1: Because we're usually just hanging out, the two of us. That's right, yeah. Or in the corner of a room crowded with other people. Which I guess masks the anxiety? I don't know. I've never gotten over it. As Elliot knows, going into rooms filled with people is, um, is hard for me. I'm not uh, proud of that. I don't really know how to locate it. Um, I like people. I enjoy my friends. But something about crowds, I, I I don't like, makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Elliot, it's very good in crowds, so
4: that's very helpful. So,
3: uh, so Elliot, what quality do you most deplore in yourself?
4: Um, maybe I ha- I've had a tendency to be too hard on people, or maybe mm. hold a grudge at times when I really should just kind of hang it up and let it go. Um, so you know, I would say the things I've done in my life that I'm the least proud of are maybe grudges that I held a little too long. Hypocrisy.
1: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd like to sidecar now into a conversation about hypocrisy, he he can go on. Yeah. Well,
3: would you like to? Would you like to develop that a little bit since Lee has given you the opening?
4: I say hypocrisy. Uh, People who play the victim when they, in fact, are the ones who have all the power, um, which I think is its own form of hypocrisy. So maybe like general falseness. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not saying we're we're perfect. I'm sure there are many times in my life when I've been false. Um, But I think falseness often comes out of a lack of self awareness. Uh, I try not to be false, uh, because I'm always trying to kind of audit what I'm doing to make sure it, you know, like it makes sense. Doesn't mean I'm perfect, but people who lack People I've come across who really lack self-awareness often seem to fall into those paradigms of hypocrisy uh, that I really, really don't like in people.
2: And your example is someone who's um, inauthentic to gain something for themselves.
4: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it.
2: So you it's know? not just they're, in, they're, in, they're not in harmony with themselves, but they're doing it to get an advantage.
4: Yeah, or you know, in the thing like I, um, I mean, this is like a very benign version of that falseness, but like people are like, you know, like, hey, like, like we're gonna have lunch next time we see each other, right? And like, we talk about having plans. Like, oh my God, we should all go to, you know, we should all go to the South of France. Oh, we're gonna do it. And everybody knows we're not gonna do it. Like, we all know we're not gonna do it. Totally guilty of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we all are in a little bit. I mean, it's like a very benign version of it, but I'm like, you know, like, let's just like, you know, let's like be real, particularly... Particularly now, it seems. It's you funny, know, There's a
1: big, but there's a big divide between let's have lunch and let's go to the south of France.
4: But you I know, mean, I mean. We're
1: <laughs> going to the south of France, we're going with people. Well, you we know, really
4: Lee, and I, Lee and I joke about it sometimes. So I am, because Lee, you know, Lee does, a, you know, Lee, Lee works in Hollywood. And, um, and I'm actually from Los Angeles originally. I was born there as a little kid. But I left when I was nine and, and never came back and became a total East Coaster. And I think, I'm making a real generalization here, but I think just sort of, there's that socially in California, I come across people, I love California, I'm from California, but it's just sort of culturally, there's a culture of like talking about things that are fun that we would like to do together. That's optimism. No, 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 <laughs> we know we're not gonna do these things together. No, uh, but it's like, but it's like, it's a way people, it's a way people I've found, not, you know, again, I'm not trying to come down on people in California, but I find it more there. <laughs> Like it's the way they express enthusiasm. Like the way they say, I like you is by talking about things that in an imaginary world sound really fun. So they're saying, isn't it fun to imagine that we would all go take this amazing vacation together someday? And and we all know this isn't going to happen, but it's sort of, it's one of those things that like always grates on me a little bit. I'm like, let's just be honest. Let's just say like, maybe we'll like text in a month and go to Starbucks.
1: Um, (laughs) My opinion is, I hate it. My opinion is, I hate it. Um, the trait I most deplore in other people is pretension.
3: Yeah, how would you distinguish that from, um, from hypocrisy then? Since both are kind of a version of falseness, I guess, at their core?
1: Hypocrisy often incorporates intellect, whereas pretension often appears in the absence of
0: intellect.
3: Do you have any, uh, any examples of, abs- like, sort of recent or distant or... Sp- where you feel like naming names,
1: or will you would never name names? Not name the name Bunny Mellon. Oh no! Okay. Everybody's definitely drink. not Bunny melon. Sorry, that's a long-standing joke between us. Um, no, we love and worship Bunny melon. Um, no, I think I think pretension, uh, pretension often comes from from a lack of um, a lack of education or knowledge or or comfort in oneself, and I don't. Um, I actually, I don't judge it as much as I just, I, I find it distasteful when it, when it pops up.
2: Lee, which living person do you most admire?
1: That, particularly having gone through the last few months in quarantine, that would definitely have to be Elliot, although perhaps in a close tie with my mother, <laughs> who are both, you know, the I. I don't want to edit my earlier answer, but a, but a, a quality I really admire in 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 anyone is, is patience, and uh, Elliot has unending patience uh, for me and for the children, and and my mother does too, and uh, so I really I really admire that.
2: Elliot, how about you? Which living person do you most admire?
4: You don't have to say me. Well, I do admire
2: you. <laughs> I do admire you. Um,
4: Yeah, I I think, you know, one of the things that's been nice about this time is it has, you know, Lee and I will talk about this, and um, as tough as this time has been, it's really been sort of uh, unique. And there are moments of this that I will look back on and think of with some nostalgia, particularly as for our family, which is a blended family. We have four kids between us. We live between two different cities. We've all really been sided together. And so one of the things that's been really special is it's given us time to sort of observe and lean on each other in ways that we haven't always. So um, I really admire, I really admire Lee. Uh, you know, we we are, you know, you learn a lot about a relationship and you really see the good things and what works when they work. Um, but our four kids, I really admire. Like they are like just little super troopers uh, and they are so, they are so, resilient and it's sort of amazing to observe children in all of this as the adults are sort of falling apart as our worlds you know are, are challenged and so many kids i've rubbed up against are, are the ones who demonstrate the type of resiliency that that, that i admire most
3: that's very uh, optimism inspiring too when we think about the next generation and how how the world will recover from all this it's it's great to think um my husband and i are not sheltering with any children right now, although I saw my two goddaughters recently, and again, I was impressed at how kind of nonplussed they are by the yeah. radical changes that this has affected in their, their lives. What is the age range of your children? Lee, your two sons will always be babies to me, because that's how I remember them first, but what are the, how old is everybody
1: now, roughly? just turned 12, about to turn 10, and two just turned eight-year-olds. So my boys are twelve and eight, and Elliot has a son who's eight and a daughter who's nine, about to be ten. So
2: they're preteen. So the oldest ones are twelve. A pack. Yeah.
1: The oldest is twelve. Yeah.
2: Lee, what is your greatest extravagance?
1: Clothes, which is which has been completely. Um, I have not indulged in my greatest extravagance in a long time now, but I think it's, you know, buying buying something online that I will wear once and. Um, I love clothes and the idea that I have a lifestyle in which I need to actually wear beautiful clothes, which I don't really. But
0: um,
1: in, my, in my in my mind, I do. That feels like a kind of hypocrisy, even as I describe it. But I, and one thing I share with Caroline, I love I love looking at beautiful clothes. I don't often buy them or wear them, but um, it feels like an extravagance.
2: Elliot, how about you? What's your greatest extravagance? Lee. <laughs> Right.
3: she's your extravagance and also your greatest necessity or how, how are you defining extravagance in that case
4: that i that i i love her and i think it's ext- an extravagance that i get to be with her <laughs> Yeah. <Right. laughs> uh
3: elliot what is your current state of mind
4: well, you know calm happy um you know i'm listen i'm i'm generally an optimist um i'm sort of I think I'm sort of like a very grumpy optimist. Uh, <laughs> like, I'm, sort of like, I'm like I like to kind of walk around like a like a I like get a, like a low growl, but I'm always sort of happy on the inside while I'm growling. You know, I kind of like I need, you know, I'm like a dog that needs the the I need the I'm a dog that needs the mail truck to chase after.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it Elliot um, or Uli, Isn't there some phrase that was it Kant used to describe himself? Is like uh, like a misanthrope, like a humanitarian misanthrope, or a, you know, somebody who hated humanity and loved humanity. What is the expression again?
2: Oh yeah, no, I don't know what the expression is. Yeah, I thought it's called a realist actually, but <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I actually don't know. I have to look what Kant's, yeah, probably not a growling dog, but. <laughs>
3: yeah, I was gonna say it's a terrier basically, but um, uh, but I'm sorry, we that took us away from Lee. Lee, what is your current state of mind?
1: I was I was feeling pretty anxious, but I feel I feel better now, you know, anxious about people getting sick and anxious about the country. But um with Elliot's help, I think
4: um
1: I feel I feel calmer now. So I guess my state of mind is is uh whip between calm and anxious.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree yeah. with that too. I mean I'm 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 wor- I'm, you know, I'm worried about the country right now. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: No, and there is
3: that weird, some of the other people we've spoken to in lockdown have, have mentioned this as well, the weird disconnect between being at home, everyone in your family being well, knowing that you're safe, uh, and yet kind of looking at the news and looking at what's going on around us and, and seeing so much, uh, so much that's frightening. So I think it is, it's hard maybe not to, not to whipsaw, and especially if loss is your, is your great fear, Lee. Um, that, or, is there anything you do besides um, uh, get counsel from Elliot to kind of help calm yourself down or like cooking, walking, cleaning?
1: I do a lot of cleaning. Um, I'm very good at laundry. Um, and you know, I listened to this, this interview, which has always struck, stuck with me with um, General McChrystal, Stan McChrystal who Elliot knows an army general. Um, And he went through an incredible crisis in his career, um, which I won't divert into, but which resulted in his resignation. And he was asked um, by this interviewer, how did you get through that period? And he said, you know, if I, and Elliot and I talk a lot about this concept, he said, if I exercise, I get in a workout, then I can handle anything. If I get if I get one hour of exercise, then that I feel in control of my day, and things can go pretty far off the rails. But I have accomplished that one thing, and that always stuck with me. And my one thing may not be exercise every day, but I try and have sort of one thing. If I get that accomplished, then you know maybe the you know the egg won't be boiled right and the bed won't be made right and I won't hit the deadline but I got that one thing accomplished so
4: one one thing Lee's been doing that I love I don't know if it calms you but you know as we're moving around the house we have different kids in the house she's been listening to this Andrew Roberts biography of Churchill which I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it's narrated by Churchill because the narrator sounds exactly like Churchill (laughs) in a room and Lee's not there I kind of hear this rumbling you know they were crossing the beaches on the second day, and then you know <laughs> like, walks in, and, like, walks out. So it's, like,
1: it's, <laughs> it's 53 hours long, and I usually only listen to it when I'm doing laundry, and I'm in like hour 49, which tells you how much laundry
0: I've done. Okay. No
3: well so yeah you've accomplished a lot and well and that is the great thing about audible books that you know yes. you can feel like you're accomplishing two things at once often i do a lot of driving to the garden I, store and I'm audible's great
1: Elliot's shirts but i'm a scholar i'm
0: a scholar of shirts
3: <laughs> <laughs> you're a scholar of world war ii well and not a bad period obviously i think a lot of people have um kind of reclaimed an interest in world war ii during this time to think about resilience and Kind of the the English case of just carrying on despite despite kind of constant barrages of bad news and and bad things happening. Um, what do you consider Lee the most overrated virtue?
0: Hmm.
1: Patience. Is that a virtue?
4: Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
1: Why overrated?
4: You said you loved about me.
1: <laughs> I
3: know. <laughs> I'm glad, I didn't want to point that out if you didn't notice it, Elliot.
1: <laughs> okay, I changed my mind to moderation. <laughs> I changed to moderation. Moderation, okay. Yeah, I, I admire patience in other people, and I also find it a great <laughs> virtue because I find that some of the people who I admire in life who really get things done actually are impatient. Hmm. So there, I just, I just, that was hypocritical, I guess. But, hmm. Hmm. We're touching all of your least
3: favorite things, both of you. Um, Elliot, what do you consider the most overrated virtue?
4: Well, this is going to sound kind of terrible, but let me explain. Um, a certain type of kindness.
3: Hmm. Okay.
4: Like, I think the type of kindness that is, like, you know, comes from a really deep place is, is extremely important. And some of the people I admire most, I admire them because they are kind but there's a certain type of kindness that seems to be very prevalent that's just sort of like a bubbly kind of frothy kindness that doesn't really get you anything. Um, I feel like that type of kindness, you know, I'd rather I'd rather have like the person who's really grumpy and true, and I certainly have a few people like that in my life, um, than the person who's sort of bubbly and kind, uh, but there's not much beneath the surface. Mm-hmm.
1: Like yeah. Alexander Hamilton was not patient. Right. Okay. But- <laughs> No, not. Pathologically impatient, and look what he right. did. So. Yeah, yeah.
2: Leon, Leon, what occasion do you lie?
1: I lie when I tell my children that if they don't brush their teeth, the dentist will tear all of their teeth out.
0: Oh wow! I
1: lie. I lie about toothbrushing. Um, I, <laughs> I think to the to the kids. If I have to, if I'm, I have I have told a lie. If I'm trying to convince them of the. Um, importance of something, but it, I try and make it sort of a funny lie because, of course, the dentist would never tear all your teeth out. But that's that's what comes immediately to mind.
2: Well, I grew up with Grimm's fairy tales because I graduated yeah. in Germany, where all these things seem totally true to people. So yeah, <laughs> actually, like they yeah, the were, teeth. they really. were this is actually the root of all fairy tales because it was instilling fear in children so they wouldn't stray off the little path and go into the forest or something. So every story has, but it was a bit much as a child because you did think, oh, this is gonna happen to me if I don't follow the rules.
0: Interesting,
2: (laughs) yeah. Uh, Elliot, on what what occasion do you lie?
4: (laughs) Um, I think I probably lie in my work, you know, in writing books. (laughs) Story, like you're always lying in your work because oftentimes it uh you know a story will start with something that's real that happened to you that you've been thinking about and meditating on it then you start taking those events and you massage those events and you're basically at the end lying about those events and trying to turn them into uh you know trying to to take them into into into, into something that you, you know, that, that feels like it has meaning to you but which is ultimately uh, a series of lies about the original kernel that was that event
2: Interesting that since the books you've written about war, um, I've taught Tim O'Brien's stories a lot because students really respond very strongly to this this distinction between story truth and happening truth. Yeah. something happened, but the way it happened is as important as what actually happened. Right. So when you're writing fiction about a kind of traumatic experience. Like I, I
4: I I have an Uncle Don and my Uncle Don is a great storyteller. And um, when, you know, Uncle Don tells these stories that every, you know, there are many people in the family who were there when it happened. And <laughs> Uncle Don will be the first to tell you, I have no interest in telling this story to you factually. I want <laughs> to tell a story that will elicit the same emotion that I felt when these events actually happened. And he'll massage it in any way he can to kind of get the same emotional response, whether it's a funny story or a sad story. Um, and my father, who's very literal, this is his brother, um, it has always driven him absolutely insane when Uncle Don starts telling stories.
3: That's amazing. Would, is, is Uncle Don an important literary influence for you in some way then, would you say? Or, I know your mom's a writer too and writes fiction as well, but...
4: Yeah, sure. I mean, Uncle Don tells great stories and he's got a great sense of humor and I admire both. Um, so, uh, but I think that, you know, you know, what Lou was saying about, you know, the, the truthiness of a story, I mean, inevitably, inevitably, you start. I mean, you know, you can call it lying, or you can just call it, you know, fiction. But you're sitting there trying to, you know, trying to create something that elicits a certain emotional response, and and it's an architecture, you know, on truths.
1: There's a great. I'm going to uh, bastardize it, but there's a great Churchill quote about how in wartime, a truth must be escorted by a bodyguard of lies oh that is great again one of the
3: benefits of doing all that laundry uh, uh lee <laughs> you can toss a relatively obscure because i feel like there are certain churchill quotes we've all heard but that was not one of them so that belo- that reveals the 49 hours yes. of, of hard labor um Elliot, what do you most dislike about your appearance
4: um I don't know. I feel pretty good about my appearance. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I have curly hair, which is great sometimes, but it uh, can get a little unruly on a summer's day when I haven't had a haircut in three or four months. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't know. Maybe that if I had easier to comb hair.
3: Yeah. <laughs> but it's looking pretty tame okay. today. Did Lee cut it? I forgot how that happened.
4: What? We cut it. We've had one, I've had one cut during COVID. Um uh, she's okay. always very she's very gentle about it. She says well, sort of like, oh you know, you know the, um, I'm getting the boy's hair cut. <laughs>
3: Interesting. <laughs> I'm taking the dog to the groomer. Any interest? Men <laughs> are primal about
1: their hair. Everyone thinks women are so connected to their hair, but men men are too, I think.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah, I think if they have it, like my father is bald and and would kill for any hair, any hair problem, just anything to be able to say
1: and know that there was hair uh, involved. Now now that I, thanks to you and our mutual friend John, did quite a bit of research on Amazon about available wigs because I was gonna get that fuchsia hot pink bob. I still think you should, yeah. I haven't haven't given up on that, but tell your dad there's some great wigs on Amazon. Yeah, I really wanted one. I'm almost afraid
3: to let him know. Please <laughs> No, we
2: can we can refer him to Pietra Parker and Miss Doe and their wigs are beyond Amazon. That's a level. Yeah, of our
3: our drag queen guests it will look
2: like you know Hollow or Marilyn Monroe or someone like that, or Robert or John F. Kennedy right away. So mm-hmm. we can we can recommend to Carrie's dad a real professional level of wigness, I think. Yeah.
3: Uh, he he might even um, fight you for the the fuchsia bob, uh, Lee. Depending on what's what's left after all of our guests have heard this and run out to order wigs, Lee. What do you most dislike about your appearance? You
1: know, I remember when I was a kid or a teenager, my, one of my older brothers came to me with this. I think it was the first David Foster Wallace book, which was called The Broom of the System, and he sort of. Threw the book at me, and he said, "Oh, this book was this book. It was written about you." And the first line of that book is something to the effect of, "All the girls I've loved have incredibly ugly feet." <laughs> <laughs> it a, a way of my brother twisting the knife on always teasing me about my feet. Yeah. You have nice feet because I have very long toes. Not
4: that long, actually. Uh, actually, if I can retract my, I so I've my always fe-
1: been insecure about my
4: feet. My feet are pretty really up there, Yeah. <laughs>
3: Okay. I know. I didn't know, and I was raised to to. I have long toes as well, and my mother always said it was a sign of sort of patrician uh, heritage. Well, that's totally pretentious. Right. (laughs) Something
1: else, you hate (laughs) yet again. Just kidding. Just (laughs) kidding. No, it is. I'm sure it is. But for me, I just felt like, you know, my friends were always looking at my long bony toes. Anyway.
3: I've never looked at your long bony toes, but I might, I might start. Um, Uli, are you, are are you, you
2: up next? Which living person do you most despise, Lee?
1: Oh, Uli, um, I don't despise anyone. I really don't. <laughs>
2: you know? I'll,
1: I'll give, uh, you know what? I'll give my, my option there to Elliot so he can say two people.
2: Elliot, who do you most despise, living people?
4: Oh, oh. I, don't dis- I, don't dis- I don't despise anyone. Yeah, life's yeah. too short to despise people. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. Famous saying: If you if you haven't, you know, the worst thing I would do, uh, the worst thing you can do to your enemy is make him despise someone and give him a grudge. I, mean, I think that's true. Hatred is really wears you out.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lee, what is the quality you most like in a man?
0: Um, Don't say patience. Um,
1: I think cur- I think courage, intellectual courage, sort of moral courage. Um, you know, physical courage if, is great, but um, I think I think sort of moral character and courage. My my dad had a lot of that. Elliot has a lot of that. I'm trying to raise kids to have that. A sort of um, I think I think being in the presence of people with moral courage makes you feel safe.
0: So that's what comes to mind.
3: Elliot, how about you? Quality you most like in a man
4: um honesty yeah like uh you know like kind of someone who's very truthful honest when they say they're going to be there they're there you know like the you know like the type of friend who shows up at like 3 30 in the morning to give you a ride or something like that you know those those Mm -hmm. types of friends
3: yeah the opposite of dude we're gonna have such a great time when we all go to the south of france
4: on team it's gonna be amazing you know yeah like the person 3 30 because
2: you really need a ride
3: Yes. It actually shows
2: up, yeah. These questions are very gendered, so obviously from the nineteenth century. But we kept the original questionnaire. What is the quality you most like in a woman? Uh,
0: I think
1: I think it's probably the same—a sort of moral, a sort of character. So, such a hard word to define, but um, you sort of know it when you feel it. I think, I think that's that's what I like in other in other people.
2: Yeah. And Elliot, how about you? What do you most like in a woman? What quality?
4: Grace, you know, which is sort of like a combination of real kindness, like the profound kindness, not the, the superficial one, but the, the really kind of the, the deep kindness and, uh, and courage and kind of those, the alchemy of those two. It's grace.
3: Which words or phrases, Elliot, do you most overuse? Uh,
4: Maybe um <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think that's my husband's um also. Um,
4: yeah. um maybe maybe come on, you know. <laughs> you know we'll the a-
3: guy in the ten thousand dollar suit, come on.
0: <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we yeah, have I bought a new I got a new dog in in uh in uh, uh January for the kids, little cute little dog. And I was like, oh, butcha budger, butcha budger, budger, budger. So Lee just finds me sitting in the room. Looking at the-,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the decorated Marine. <laughs> I've never heard from you before, and now you say it all the time. <laughs> <laughs>
3: that is great. That's why every household should have at least one dog, yeah. I think. It brings out a different, a different quality. Um, Lee, which words or phrases do you most overuse?
1: I'm embarrassed to say it's probably fuck.
3: Right. Wasn't and how, wasn't that your signature? Didn't that get you into trouble in high school where the assumption was
1: something about? Yes, I was um, known for drinking Fresca. And um, in my high school, there was an empty Fresca can found beside a stash of drugs, which were not mine. But um, the head of the house said something like, if there's a Fresca or... You hear the the, the F word. It's probably Carpenter, but I but I have to say I I really try not to use it around the children. But it just um, it does come out when I'm when I'm frustrated or if I burn my egg or whatever. Um, Right? Is that yeah? that that good?
0: I need to work on that.
1: (laughs) I need to work on that. Yeah, the earmuffs. Um,
3: the egg seems to keep coming back. What what's been going on with your eggs?
1: Elliot really inspired me to get to. Learn to make the perfect hard-boiled egg, um, but I make eggs almost every day for breakfast for us or for the kids. Or so I've gotten much better at different kinds of eggs. So
4: you also, you also do uh, yes. these like shrieker, like all like all like you know like Hi! Ah! you know.
0: Well, There's like, lots of bugs in the house.
3: Oh God, that this, yeah.
4: This morning I wake up. I wake up early to like get my work done. I woke up early and I forgot a notebook in our room. I tried to sneak back in and she, Lee was still on the bed. And I mean, I I think I just about killed her.
1: Ah! (laughs) (laughs) It was so early. Elliot likes to get up very very early, so.
3: (laughs) No, Lee, I didn't know you had that, but yeah, I have a terrible startle reflex and which results in shrieking and it's embarrassing because it is involuntary. So I can't, I haven't found a way to work on it. Like Paul and I are alone in this house. And at least once a day, Elliot, I'll yes. turn the corner in this very small house and he'll be standing there and I'll shriek. And they'll say, who did you think it would be here? Like, why is it so surprising? It's just been the two
1: of us for the last three or
3: four months. And yet somehow the, the shriek, it comes from a very
1: deep place. Well, I found, this is the last time I'll digress, but I found a really large bug that was almost like a small rodent. And when I saw it, mm. I screamed really loudly. No one came to my rescue. And I walked mm. down the stairs right below the room I'd been in. And Elliot was quietly sitting at the kitchen counter, <laughs> reading his book, eating a grilled cheese. And there's no way he didn't hear me. So I said, did you hear me? He said, yes. Oops. I said, well, I could be dead. He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was the shriek of you saw a bug. Yeah. <laughs> and so I just
4: decided to ignore I'll be, it. I'll be up in a minute.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's maybe it's the, the boy who cried wolf uh, issue that, you know, if you hear too many shrink, shrieks, yeah, I've often been surprised at the, the, the lack of speed with which Paul has responded to my shrieks, because again, we could be dead, but um, maybe there is a way in which they can discern I know, levels I know, of distress. I
4: know some shrieks. You,
3: you know, well, and, I mean, yeah, you're a soldier.
4: Left corner, I know this one. I'll be there in a minute.
3: <laughs> um, Elliot, what or who is the greatest love of your life?
4: He is the great love of my life. Yes, Elliot is the great love of my life.
3: Yeah. That That's one of the reasons I was happy that you guys could be our first couples okay. interview. I did tell you ahead of time that Paul said, my husband said one of our dogs, um, <laughs> So there was, there's no pressure.
1: He was nervous, right?
3: No, no, I think it's, it's a, it's a a different, it's a different kind of. Different kind of
2: love.
3: Different (laughs) kind of love.
1: Uh, Lee,
2: when and where were you happiest?
1: No, I'm, I'm dispositionally a happy person, even when I'm anxious. So I, I run on a, on a pretty steady state of low grade contentment, which I think is what I would call happiness. Um, no, I was pretty happy this morning having my nap until you came through my <laughs> <a> dream, <laughs> dreaming that I was in the south of France. No, um, no I, I, it's, hard, it's hard for me to think about moments because I don't think about high points of happiness so much. I also have held on with a lot of care and love to hard and low moments, but I feel pretty content right now.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Aliyad, when and where were you happiest?
4: Well, I'm very happy right now. I don't know, I think when I, when, I, when I think of being a little kid in Southern California, there's sort of like a purity to those memories. You know, just sort of like endless blue sky days on the beach. You know, I don't, I don't remember going to school. I know that I did, but I remember like <laughs> the amusement parks and being on the beach and going to see movies and playing in the video arcade with my friends. Um, you know, when I was six, seven, eight years old, those sort of years, mm-hmm. and they just sort of were like,
2: yeah, just these sunny uh, years. Mm-hmm. They're very pure in my memory. Mm-hmm. Elliot, which talent would you most like to have? And Lee, how about you? Which talent would you most like to have? I'd like to sing.
0: I could have
1: Beyonce's voice. Sir. I'd like to have a, I'd like to be able to sing. Is there
3: a piano in the house there? Could Elliot start?
1: There
4: is. Yeah, I'm a pro- for the record, I can play heart and soul chopsticks.
3: Okay. With the best of
4: them. I've got a, I've got a, I've got a few. But All right. it, it seems it's great, like, people who can play the piano like what, what a nice skill to have. Yeah.
3: yeah. Yeah. And sitting down, I took years of piano lessons, but I still struggle with sheet music and, you know, like, the slow, painful pauses in between yes. the note that everyone who's around you knows should be coming next, and it just I, that idea that you can just sit down and start playing beautifully with no effort is is so amazing.
1: Vail, um, our oldest, who, who just turned 12, has been taking piano, and he's finally sort of mastered Fur Elise. Oh yeah. So now we have to hear Fur Elise 86,000 yeah, yeah. times a day, All day, which is kind of a form of torture, but I'm so proud of him that it's okay.
0: Yeah.
3: Yeah. No, that's like that's a level up from chopsticks but it sort of is in that same <laughs> that same repertoire of although maybe it'll become a sort of a Proustian trigger for you after the lockdown but I bet- you'll, you'll hear it in a on, in an elevator on muzak 10 years from now and you'll be transported back to Delaware in the pandemic. I know I bet I will. Those hmm. triggers are so powerful. If you could change one thing about yourself, Lee,
1: what would it be? It's a hard question. I think I'd like to be less hard on myself.
4: Mm -hmm. Elliot. Um, I just always, always like to have more peace, like just be able to like be relaxed easier, you know, when I'm working (laughs) hard or something, but when the time to not work is there to just be able to kind of just really relax. And not be thinking about the next thing. Um, yeah. so on it, but it would be great to master that like playing the piano.
3: Yeah. 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 That. so do you have trouble turning it off if you've been working all day? Is it hard to come out of that?
4: Yeah, or sometimes it's like, you know, you know, it's Saturday morning, you know, you've got nothing to do until Monday, but for whatever reason you're thinking about Monday. Don't think about yeah.
2: Monday, Think about Saturday and Sunday. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You, know, you know, just stuff like that. Yeah. Lee, what do you consider your greatest achievement?
1: I think that the children, that's probably just a boring answer, but I think, um, I think the children and, and, and uh, if, if there's uh, any interest in, in, in something more than that, I think making the commitment to try and be a writer it took me a really really long time to get over all sorts of demons i had about trying out writing i had to have a career and um move past all of the architecture i'd built up that told me i didn't deserve to be a writer and and get far enough into it that i could look in the mirror and say hey this is what i'm going to do um and I'm, I'm proud of, I'm proud of that. Yeah, you had a really incredible,
3: Lee, since, um, I've known you since before you identified as a writer. Uh, you had a really, you had a really amazing experience, I recall, with your first novel, um, with your, your late agent, Ed Victor, kind of presenting you with the challenge. Can you say just a a, a little bit about that? Because it's such a great story, and maybe it will inspire somebody who's, who's listening to this and who wants to make that leap as well.
1: Sure, um, I've, I, Elliot's helped me tell this story in a more um, succinct way. Um, so my father died and after he died, all I wanted to do was um, some kind of public service oriented job. He, he kind of left me that legacy or that desire. Although ironically I found out much later that he actually wanted to be a writer, but, um, so I had, I was writing a book with Bo Biden, who was then the attorney general for the state of Delaware, my home state. And, uh, I really decided that what I wanted to do with my life was work for Bo. He, um, had been a jag in Iraq and had a really promising career ahead of him. Probably the next step for him would have been governor of the state. And, um, you know, many people thought he could have gone um, all the way to the White House. He just, um, he was an incredible guy. And um, so we were, I was sort of going to help him write that first campaign book. I'd written some speeches for him and, and had had grown up with him. And uh, while we were working on that book, and i had gotten an agent for the book, and we were shopping it to publishers, Bo had a stroke. Very unexpectedly, he was in great health. Uh, he was very young. And um, and when that happened and the book was put on hold, that agent sort of sat me down and said, you know, Lee, I think that you should try and write a book under your own name. I said, that's crazy. He said, no, you know, look, if you, <clears throat> if you write 10,000 words under your own name and I like what you write, then I'll represent you. And I was reading at the time a lot of books on the military, not only because Bo. Of my work with Bo, but because my father had been in the military and very long story short, I wrote 10,000 words um, to give to Ed and I had decided to set my story in the Navy SEAL community, which was a pretty obscure community, although it fit into the special operations world that I was interested in at the time. And Ed had given me a deadline, which was March, uh, May 3rd, uh, 2011. I met with Ed on the morning of May 3rd, 2011, I gave him my 10,000 words. He said, what's it about? I said, it's about Navy SEALs. Ed laughed because that morning Navy SEALs were on the cover of every newspaper in the world because we had the day before um, killed Osama bin Laden and it had gotten out that the Navy SEALs were involved in that. And so Ed was able to help me sort of uh, figure out how to sell that book to a publisher. And then um, Bo was diagnosed with cancer and, um, and he died in 2015, and, and I, I sort of was in the situation of having written something, having never thought I could have a career as a writer, but not knowing where to go, and so I just, with Ed's encouragement, I just, uh, I just kept writing, and uh, yeah, he was an incredible uh, source of support and a great, great guy.
2: Lee, I actually remember from the beginning of your novel, there's a character you describe, the narrative describes the character as not being able to distinguish between the power of an idea and the power of an idea that's put into action. And you just started out talking about saying that you had this idea of being a writer, but all the things you had to overcome to be a writer. This kind of abstract idea to all of this. It's a very moving story that you got to. And I'm glad the book then, you wrote the book actually. Um,
1: it's sort of, it just... I didn't know what I was doing, but I had this sense that I wanted to tell. That book was really about my father, you know, trying to understand myself as a civilian, Mm -hmm. how I suddenly had ended up in what people were telling me was a military family, Mm -hmm. um, which is a longer story. But, and so in the book, as you know, Sarah's journey is to sort of figure out how her son ended up
0: pursuing what he pursues.
2: But I think this kind of book that opens up the experience of the military for civilians and that there's this shift from being a bystander to a witness to someone involved in the story. Um, It's a very important story, I think, for America in a way to sort of see to bridge this kind of false divide between the military and civilian life. Um, so, it's very, so it's very moving, I think, to sort of bring this character into to sort of open this up for people that this divide is probably, it's false. I think it's also very dangerous for the country to have this divide maintained.
1: Yeah, and that's something if you, again, ever want another very thoughtful conversation on that subject, Elliot is a great person.
3: Well, and I think I uh, interceded about your greatest achievement, but Elliot had yet to answer that. So I'm sorry to interrupt.
2: But I think you're right, Elliot. Exactly, we're still with Lee. We could go on with Lee, but Elliot, what is your greatest, what do you consider your greatest achievement?
4: Um, I, you know, I, the family I came from, everyone in my family was in business, so I, I had an early career in the military, but my uncle, uncle Don businessman, my father took a very circuitous uh, route into business. And, um, and my grandfather on uh, my father said, I never knew he died relatively young. I remember my father telling me at one point, and he kind of had a complicated relationship with his dad. I remember him telling me at one point, you know, when I first went into business in my mind um, and um, and you know, our family business didn't do well when my grandfather was, was, was dying. So there were a lot of problems in the family. Um, but he said, you know, in my mind, when I was first going into business, my, he's like, it might sound silly, but I always had this, this image that if I could go to my dad and I could earn a million bucks and I could give it to my dad, that everything I ever did in my life would be validated in his eyes, you know? And, and so we sort of had, you know, my father had told me that story once or twice um, you know, as I was like a young man, I like, kind of figured out, you know, who am I gonna be? What am I gonna wind up doing? Um, and my father actually went on to, uh, you know, he and I are very close. He's one of my great heroes. He went on to have a, a very interesting and extremely successful, but at times very complicated business career. Um, and then I ultimately, you know, decided not to go into business and went into the military, which was a real departure for anyone in my family. Um, and anyway, so when I came back from Iraq, uh, you know, I was awarded uh, awarded a medal for valor, and um, so the last day of my unit. They gave it to me, and the entire battalion came out. It was like a thousand Marines in formation. I went in front, and the general was there. Uh, my family came, and they, you know, they pinned the medal on me. Um, and then I went over to my dad. And I said, "Hey, dad, you know, here's your million bucks." I gave him a hug, um, and that was probably, you know, I felt like my greatest achievement. <laughs>
3: That's amazing. Um- if you were to die, Elliot, and come back as a person or a thing, who or what would it be?
4: Um, I think I'd like to come back as someone who, who gets to know my kids when they're older.
0: Oh, that's interesting.
4: You know, like when they're much older.
0: Yeah.
4: Or you know, oh, or, maybe my, or maybe my grand, probably actually probably more probably be like my grandkids. You know, I'd yeah. like come back, you know, and be like, you know, a I don't know, like a friend to my grandkid or something like that. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't know I was, you know, but I knew. curiously <laughs> like, watched their lives and be like, so kid, how's it going, you know? <laughs>
0: <laughs>
4: what do you think that? <laughs>
2: that is like, yeah, exactly.
3: <laughs> that, I feel like Proust threads that needle so well, often the kind of fine line between observation and just creepy voyeurism, you know, <laughs> It's a, it's a a tough line to walk, but I can imagine. Like,
4: I want to be like the guy in the deli who gives them their bagel each morning, you know, but I kind of get to see them and and watch how they're doing.
3: Yeah. Yeah. When they don't know that you're observing them for
4: that closely. But I think that comes out of that sense of like, you know, and as you get older, like as I get older and as my kids get older, I see now with my parents, you know, I have a brother and I, my brother and I are also very close. And I see how my parents know, you know, they're both in fine health and everything, but like I get, they know that in their minds, when they're gone, they know my brother and I are gonna take care of each other. You know, yeah. And now, and now that I've realized that, so my parents look at, I look at our kids and I realize, you know, I hope we do a good enough job with all of them, that they're all equipped with un- enough love for one another when they're adults and they don't wanna kill each other, that you know, that they then take care of one another. And that's, you know, it sounds very obvious, but that's sort of how it works. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I'd like to say that I'd like to come back as one of David Mortimer's dogs. <laughs> <laughs> okay, David Mortimer,
3: a dear friend of ours. Our Yours, advocate. mine, Elliot.
1: Um, But this will be my last reference to the Churchill book. You know, Churchill hated de Gaulle, and de Gaulle used to go around telling everyone he was the reincarnation of jo- Joan of Arc. Oh, very famously at this dinner when Churchill had just had a horrible fight with de Gaulle. He told everyone at the dinner, yes, the general keeps telling people that he's the reincarnation of Joan of Arc, but I can't seem to get my bishops to burn him.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I want to die and come back as Winston Churchill um, for the wit alone.
1: Uh, he was amazing. I've, I've, I'm, I'm going to take Eliot's answer, this idea that you could come back in the future and see not only just your own children, but sort of
4: see the next generation, I think would be really interesting from a different point of view. Did you ever see that Robert Downey Jr., Robert Downey Jr., Movie? Really, chances are?
3: Yes. Yes. And he what is back. it? What was the, yeah, he died. And then.
4: He gets, he, it's the boy and uh, the guy who was in, um, I'm forgetting the actor's name. He was in Love Story. He was a great actor in the 1970s. Plays Civil Shepherd's husband. In the opening scenes, he's crossing the street in Georgetown and gets hit by a car. Um, yeah. And then he's reincarnated. and He gets reincarnated as Robert Downey Jr., but they forget to give him the injection in heaven that zaps his memory. So he has all the memories of the old guy. And then he meets, he meets basically his daughter at college. And mm-hmm. then and he goes home and meets Civil Shepherd again. Who, you know, and all the memories start coming back. Yeah.
3: yeah, I remember. I loved that movie actually. So,
2: it's actually it's a pretty sweet movie. Yeah. I think Carrie. I'm trying to think whether Paul said that someone we should interview for the podcast. I think he meant may have said Robert Downey Jr.
3: He did not. No, he said when asked <laughs> who, who we who, who did he he would like to hear. He said Mandy Patinkin.
2: Oh, okay.
3: <laughs> totally different.
2: Totally different. All right, same universe. Kettle totally of fish. Okay.
3: Um, yeah, um, but it, it kind of had that quality. I mean, yeah, Robert Downey yeah. Jr. wouldn't be bad, but I did, I loved those movies of that era before Robert Downey Jr. seemed like, before the whole Iron Man moment, right?
2: <laughs> well, you can't um, The next question is for the two of you together. Where would, uh, Lee and Elliot, where would you like, most like to live? You go first.
0: Together?
1: Do you, have to, you
2: have to answer together, both uh-huh. of you.
1: <laughs> a count of three.
2: Yeah. <laughs> No, it's not a
3: two Yeah, count <laughs> of three is great and then we'll see.
4: Okay. One, two, all right, I'm going to shut my eyes and close my ears and Lee can say hers and then I'll say mine.
1: Okay. okay. Go, Lee. I'd, I'd like to live on a snowy mountaintop, but I know he'd like to live in London.
2: Okay. Awesome. Great, and now you can wake him up from his state of...
4: <laughs> Elliot? Um... Well, my favorite city, I lived in Istanbul for a number of years, and that's probably my favorite city. Um, I don't know if we would live there together full time again, um, but I grew up in London and I love London.
2: Yeah. So okay. between London and Lee said a snowy mountaintop. So that's kind yeah. of a big, you can try that. We can, yeah. we can, we'll let you guys work that out. So this beautiful,
1: I'll probably
3: be here.
2: We'll probably, gonna be here.
0: In in
3: Delaware. Delaware is like the natural compromise between.
1: fantasies, We like to have a,
0: yeah, that's
3: yeah. right. That's nice. <laughs> um what is your most treasured possession? And I guess I'll have you two answer that one separately.
1: Oh, um, that's hard. Uh no, I have these I, I don't uh, wear a lot of jewelry, but I have um these two Saints medals that I wear that I wear on a piece of parachute cord that actually i i took from elliot or he gave to me um and i feel sort of i feel sort of attached to that if that counts it's my parachute cord it's my yeah. it's oh i've seen that i never knew that that was a parachute cord and I, I wear it all the time yeah um, and when i met elliot he was wearing the parachute cord and these two saints medals were given to me by um two sort of Surrogate mothers in my life, and uh, yeah, I don't know why I'm not deeply religious, but I, I care for this a lot.
4: Yeah, the parachute cord was. I used to wear my dog tags on it in my pocket, and then I started wearing it around my neck. And then I, when I came, when I was out of the service, and I had a, a Saint Michael's medal, I wore on it, and then I gave it, to mm-hmm. it. Um And then I would say for me, possessions. Um, well, you know, I have for my kids, I have my, I've told my daughter, do- I mean, I don't think these are the most valuable possessions I have, but I've told my daughter like that she could, they've asked me, I said, you know, you'll have all my war medals. Like I will give those to my daughter. Cause we talk about, we've always talked about what it means to like be brave and things like that. And I want her to have those. Um, and then I have my watch, which I also wore all through the wars. Uh, and I've told my son when he gets old enough, he can have that watch.
3: Yeah. Oh that's lovely. It's great. Is ha, do either of them show any interest thus far in a military career?
4: My my son very intensely, which I have mixed emotions about. But I'm sure. You know, and I'm not really the type of person that like I don't have all my stuff up everywhere, but he has this very very uh intense interest. But you know, he's he he's eight, so we'll see what happens. Right.
3: Um What do you regard, Lee, as the lowest depth of misery?
1: Um I think the day my father died was the lowest I've ever been. Yeah. How long ago was that now? Ten years. That was eleven years ago,
0: Yeah. yeah.
4: Elliot? Um, The idea of not having a purpose, like not knowing what I'm getting up to do each day is is is, is miserable. You know, not, not feeling like I have a, a mission. Um, yeah. So I, I really need that. That's what, that's what, where I drive my joy.
3: Yeah. Did that kind of, that mission drive, would you say that was kind of the chicken or the egg in your, your choosing a military career to begin with? Is it,
4: yeah, well, per, I was a very unlikely, as a young man, a very unlikely military officer, because all in my teens, I was a, you know, near-do-well, skateboarding, baggy pants-having, big afro-wearing
3: Yeah, of, the hair alone.
4: Yeah, Just... lots of hair. Um, but I was very into skateboarding, and that was my mission. And then it became the military. And then, it, you know, so my, people who know me kind of said I've always had these chapters, Um it's funny, you know, when I was when I was in the military, I used to have this reoccurring dream, and in this dream, I would be my hair would be long again, and I would be out surfing or skateboarding. I was probably smoking some weed or doing something I shouldn't be doing, kind of reverting to my old ways, regressing. And I would kind of wake up in a panic and touch my hair and realize I still had my buzz cut. <laughs> at the edge. I was, you know, still. Uh, 26 year old Lieutenant in my battalion. Oh, okay. I'm all right. I haven't regressed. And then I left the military and, you know, I have a lead a more creative life now and I never have that dream anymore. Hmm. Um, And to me, my analysis I've always done is that, you know, I think we all, um, you know, like Whitman says, we all contain multitudes and there were just sort of parts of my personality. I had to suppress in those years and I couldn't engage with, um, just like there are also parts of my personality that I, that I used to engage with a lot more, but don't engage uh, with now. And actually my reoccurring dream now is I'm 23 years old and I'm always right at the beginning of my career in my training and I am on a training exercise and I don't know if I'm gonna pass the exercise and I'm terrified, oh my God, am I gonna, you know, am I gonna fail at this time? Am I I'm not gonna be able to do the thing this time like I did it before? Um, and I have that dream now probably every, every I don't know, a couple months.
2: This leads to the next question. What is your favorite occupation, Elliot?
4: My favorite, like if I had an alternate
2: occupation that I could do? Could be what you're doing now or an alternate one, something you're not doing right now. I would say I I love what I'm doing right now. I'm very, very satisfied. I love my work. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, Yeah, I'm I'm content. Lee, how about you? What was your favorite occupation? i
1: think writing
2: you're both doing what you love right now. Yeah. Yeah. Although Formula One race car driver in
4: the 1970s is a close number two. Okay. Yes.
3: Well, yeah, that we should have addressed that with reincarnation too. Could you come back as that while also having a sort of loving surveillance over your future (laughs) grandchildren. That does, I think kind of any, like any job in the 70s just seems cooler too. At this moment. Homicide detective in the 70s. Yes fashion model in the 70s. Um, uh, let's see. Um, what, Lee, is your most marked characteristic? What you think people notice about you first?
1: I'm actually very clumsy, but I don't know if that's the the lead for people who haven't <laughs> known me for a long time. Um, I think reserve, Hysterically funny, I mean. I hysterically was, funny. I'm, I'm <laughs> I mean,
4: not, not to sound like a total misogynist. I think you're very beautiful.
3: Yes, I know. Actually, Lee, I remember one of the I, I don't think I've ever told you this, but the wife of a friend of ours, so um uh Judith LeClaire, used to say to me when you and I were first becoming friends, she'd say, Oh, that's so sweet. I you know I, I saw that you were, you know, at that event with Lee. Lee just has that feeling face and she would make like a little kind of heart-shaped shape around her face which is not as heart-shaped as yours and I always felt like that was such kind of nice shorthand for both your beauty but also the kind of the the personality that your heart-shaped face exudes.
1: I am I'm super super accident prone and clumsy much to Elliot's amusement so I'm always spilling a soup or tripping on a rock or something um, and I it's Interestingly, my now 12-year-old does the same way. So I actually it's it's genetic, I
3: guess. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I think accident, my mother is very accident prone and, and so am I, and it really is a strange thing to think that you could transmit that quality somehow. Um, Elliot, what is your most marked characteristic, in, I guess in this current incarnation? Well,
4: I would say one that, I don't know, I mean, it's tough, to, it's tough to say that about yourself, but I would say one that goes through every carnation of my life for every chapter is um, my dogged insistence on referencing movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the things I love about you. I shouldn't be referencing movies, but I'll just, I don't know. It is, it's true. I, I've, like, ever since I've been a little kid, I've always done this. I don't know, maybe I, th- I think I have an associative mind and often oftentimes it associates with the movie and I'm just like, oh my God, this is just like that scene in Blah and yeah. I'll be so tickled by it. I'll have to say it to someone, even though I am sure they've never seen that movie or recall that scene. And in actually
1: the first time I met Elliot's father, who I was okay. very in- intimidated by, sort of halfway through the meal, um, somehow the movie, The Godfather came up and he turned to me, I really felt like I was on a quiz show. And he said, Lee, what's the six word line from that movie that no one ever forgets? And by the grace of God, I remembered, um, leave the guns, take the cannoli. Take the
2: cannoli. So
1: good, yeah. <laughs> I think I won him over in that yeah, True story.
3: <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, maybe that's not genetically transmitted, but it's something yeah. that's in yeah. the atmosphere in the Ackerman house.
4: I, yeah, I, I guess we love movies, but,
3: yeah. yeah. Uh, Elliot, what do you most value in your friends? You've already talked about this a little, but maybe want to say a little more?
4: Yeah, just that, 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 that that trait of honesty, you know, people who, people who really show up and isn't it interesting, you know, you, you know, it takes crises like these and you kind of figure, you start to figure out who your people, you know, you figure out who your people are. Um, I mean, yeah, it can surprise you.
3: Yeah. Did, th- was, was military life, did that, was that another thing where you would kind of see when the chips were down, who your people were?
4: Interestingly enough, so many of the people you go to war with, you already know. And so you've hmm. been training together and known each other for some months and uh i think for me the expectation was well then we'll get to war and then we kind of see you know what people are really made of and actually you already knew what everybody was made of and i can think of very few cases where anyone really surprised you
3: yeah that's interesting a friend of mine likes to quote uh, a friend of mine worked at island def jam records Mm -hmm. in the 90s and uh apparently Jay-Z at the time had a, a sort of an aphorism, which is you are who you were before you got there. Exactly. This idea that basically you're mm-hmm. always the same. So you're Jay-Z oh. super famous or you're Jay-Z mm-hmm. not super famous and you're you're the same person. But it's interesting to think about that applied to the military because yeah, I think as a civilian, mm-hmm. my assumption would be that somehow life in war is so different that it shows a different or deeper side of people. and
4: or Not at say, all. It doesn't matter the rocks that I got. I'm just Jenny from the block.
1: You <laughs> <laughs> used to have a little, now you have a lot. Yeah. slurs <laughs> uh, <laughs> for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> want to have that conversation. Um, yeah, all so what I most admire um, in my friends is loyalty. Um, although I will say, a friend of mine showed me this, this picture recently. Um, and it was a pyramid and it was the, you know, the hierarchy of friendship. And um, at the second tier to the top of the pyramid was, um, I will take a bullet for you. And the very top little triangle was, we talk on the
3: phone. Lee, <laughs> that's a good one for us. That's a good one for us because I feel like
1: yeah. you know, there are, I could count on one hand the people actually speak on the phone with. Mm -hmm. Same here. And I
3: don't like the phone with most people actually. Yeah, those are very important friendships. Yeah, the idea that a bullet is less painful than the phone. Yes. Yeah.
2: Lee, who are your favorite writers?
1: Oh, gosh, so many, uh, so many. Um, Elliot Ackerman and Caroline Webber. The writers who've been real touchstones for me since I was a teenager um are Tom Stoppard, David Hare, um Tony Kushner, Edward Albee really it were it was playwrights that first got me really it, into language um and so when I when I when I'm sort of feeling low and I want to pick up writers that are going to remind me why I write it's yeah, there are a lot of playwrights in that category um you know Carol Churchill, um, of course, Shakespeare, but probably Tom Stoppard and Tony Kushner topping that list. Yeah. And in terms of prose writers, uh, as Caroline and Elliot know, I I, I, I love Joan Didion. She's, uh, she's, she's been a, I don't know her, but she's been a touchstone for me in many, many ways. And I've also been listening to her, all of her nonfiction um, during COVID, which has just reminded me sort of how she uses language. Um, I love Elizabeth Hardwick, but they're just—they're just too many to mention. But I'll—I'll I'll
4: start off with those.
2: Elliot, uh, how
4: about you? Um, <laughs> I was going to start cataloging like, what have I read recently? Is always kind of where where I go. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
4: the stuff that I feel like was foundational that I read. I don't know what's what I'm thinking about as much these days, but obviously it informs you. I mean, you know, like I like Conrad, I like Graham Greene, I like Hemingway, I like Didion. Um, I like Tom Stopper, too. I love Lee. Uh, I love all of her stuff. Um, you know, I was recently just like rereading uh, uh, some Richard Yates and a book of his I never read before, called mm-hmm. *Young Hearts Crying*. Uh, oh, this is such a good book. Like it just sort of floored me how good it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I was recently reading one of uh, Shelby Foote's novels. I mean, he's the most famous for the narrative history of the Civil War he did, which is this huge three-volume. Sure uh track you know he's he was a novelist um and i was sort of um the book was love in a dry season it's just like such a beautiful book and i don't think people read it that widely or widely and it kind of was impressing on me there's just so many beautiful books that you know for whatever reason just kind of bloom and then you know stay in the corner
1: right right start of covid when things were very high anxiety and schools were closing and uh uh, in that moment i just elliot had given me a copy of john le carré's the little drummer girl which i had never read and i have to say that's one of the best books i've ever read i was completely drawn into this world he creates and this story he tells in order to look at the middle east um conflict and i i i really admired what he did with yeah.
0: that
1: book look I, th- okay. I
3: think he's one of my husband's favorite writers really i forgot did paul say that on his podcast i
2: think so yeah
3: yeah he, yeah. he reads very little fiction but Luke Carre for him is is so important i haven't read actually i haven't read um little drummer girl and then what was the what was the yates book that you mentioned
4: uh, Elliot? young hearts cry
3: young hearts cry i want to yeah. get that too
4: and, you know, he's one of these writers who just does a great job in a novel of like taking. You know, he always he always traverses like at least fifty years in a book. And
0: <laughs> that's that's
4: impressive. like a skill to make like a compelling book that's like you know two hundred
2: fifty pages where you cover that much time. You you your friends with Shelby Ford's son, right, photographer? Yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, UG. Yeah, he's yeah.
2: Great. I know UG. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, very southern. Like it's actually he's done the
4: last two um, author photos for me. He,
2: oh. Great. Oh, that's wonderful. Actually I yeah, actually have a scene in my son for his last cookie event, um, maybe two years ago already or something in the city. Oh, I, I saw that somewhere. had a connection. Who is your hero in fiction or film, uh, Elliot? An invented character?
4: Oh, um, Oh man. Uh, I don't know. maybe in film, maybe it's Ferris Bueller. <laughs> <laughs> more than Ricky Bobby. I you know no Ricky Bobby's up. Ricky Bobby's certainly up there. I mean, you know, maybe a little bit of Ron Burgundy too. Uh I mean, you know, I'm an I'm an unabashed Will Ferrell fan. I mean, partic- particularly his sort of stuff from the aughts. I mean, you just I think it's just like yeah. it's, it's tough to do better. Um I don't know. Like, listen, when I watch movies, I mean, I, I love all sorts of films, but like, I just, I, I, I love a good comedy. And I'm trying to think the last really great one I saw, but I feel like we don't kind of have those really seminal comedies, don't kind of come out the same way.
2: And any characters in books? Because we just updated, because of he didn't have the movies when he answered this the first time around in um, 1895. Um,
4: I think maybe Pyle in The Quiet American. I sort oh. of identify with,
0: yeah,
4: you know, uh, you know, the guy who, who just doesn't know what he doesn't know and is a little bit hapless. Now, um, <laughs> I like to think I haven't always been pile. Maybe I've always been trying not to be pile. <laughs>
3: yeah. I think if you, yeah, I think if you're thinking that you're trying not to be pile, then by definition you're not pile.
2: Mm-hmm. One can only hope. Right. Lee, who is your hero um, of fiction?
1: Well, I just As I was just thinking about Tom Stoppard as we were talking about him, I remember so vividly I was in school and I went to, I had the opportunity to go see his play Arcadia at Lincoln Center and that play has been a real touchstone for me in a lot of ways ever since um, and although she's quite young, the character of Thomasina in Arcadia, mm. uh, who's the math prodigy loosely based on Ada Byron, I think, um, who who weeps as she reads the history of the burning of the library at Alexandria and sort of has a sneaker crush on her cute tutor, um, Septimus, played in that original production by Billy Crudup. I think that was like his first big role. Um, but yet, yeah, Stoppard's women, um, like Shakespeare's women, are strong and complex and so damn smart, you know. I just, there's something, um, I think I'd like to be a woman in a Tom Stoppard play. Probably any one of them.
2: Mm-hmm. That, that is so nice. I love Arcadia. It's one of my favorite plays.
1: It's just perfect what he does. I remember so, the,
2: all the two times in it or something in that woman in the, in the class. I also always thought, and I don't know if this is right, but I always thought it's um, a reference to Wilde's importance of being earnest, where yeah. you have his prism as the math teacher, his stern yeah. governess or something like that. Which happens to be one of my favorite plays because I think it's one of the great achievements in the English language.
0: Like, yeah.
2: But Thomasina is a great character. Yeah. That's a wonderful character. And
1: there's, there's that amazing, um, she inspires one of my favorite speeches in Olive Stoppard, which is as she's weeping over the destruction of the library at Alexandria. He, the tutor Septimus, gives this speech in which he essentially says, you know, we we pick up as we lose things.
3: What are your favorite
1: names? Oh um No, I guess Phelan, and Alexis and Coco and Ethan, the kids' names. Um we our new our newest dog is Tuesday. And uh <laughs> I, love, I love I love the name Tuesday. I sort of which, you know, if we had another daughter, maybe she'd have to be Tuesday too or something. Um Tuesday's a great name. Um, it
4: causes all sorts of scheduling confusions. we are like pick up Tuesday and <laughs> <laughs> What are you doing Tuesday? Oh, yeah. Where's Tuesday? Yeah. I mean,
1: it's not Pliny the Elder Pliny is it Pliny the <laughs> Pliny Elder the or Elder. Pliny the Elder? Um, no, I like um I like contemporary names. My my um, No, my my boys both have family names. All the kids have family names. Mm -hmm. So, how about you? You're gonna say Genghis Khan. (laughs) Say Genghis Khan. Uh,
4: (laughs) I like Tuesday. Lee came up with the name Tuesday for our dog, and I love it because um, good things happen on Tuesdays. Elections are on Tuesdays. Books are always published on Tuesdays. Um, And Lee and I Lee and I met on a Tuesday. So it was sort of a perfect perfect dog name for us.
3: Did you really? Yeah, we met you remember the Tuesday?
4: Yeah, because it was the day Lee's first book
2: came out we met.
3: You met on the, really? Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, nice.
3: Oh, my God. Okay, that's another whole, maybe well, not a podcast, just a conversation over our cocktails.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lee, but- what is it that you most dislike?
1: What is it that I most dislike? Mm-hmm. Um, cocktail parties? No, Um, I most dislike... Um, S- social, ob- social obligations that I, that I, that leave me feeling anxious, I think that's, and I most dislike, you know, when someone is unwell or, or uh, in pain, I mean, there's so many different levels at which to answer that question, but I think on the one, on, on one side of the spectrum of what I dislike is cocktail parties, and on the other side of the spectrum is when one of the
4: children is in pain, any kind of pain. Mm-hmm.
2: Elliot, what do
4: you like? Well, not to put it on the level of one of the children is in pain. I think that's you know, the top of the pyramid. Um, I dislike complaining in the face of a great challenge. That makes sense. Like, like God knows, I'm someone who will complain. Um, you know, when I was in the Marines, there was a classic truism, which was you know the only time you have to worry about a Marine is when he stops bitching. You know. <laughs> something's really gone wrong. If they're all complaining about something, like they're fine.
3: It's like French people, yeah.
4: Yeah, but you know, there are those moments where like something real happens and like we have to rise up and deal with it, like whether it's personally in your life or, you know, and when the response to that is sort of complaining or whining, you know, like that, that really, I really dislike that, you know, like when it's game time, like it's game time. Um, and I really admire people who recognize the difference between the two shut up, don't complain, like, let's just get through this. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
3: As Winston Churchill said, um, what, Elliot, is your greatest regret?
4: Oh, um, probably the times in my life when I didn't do that, when I maybe complained a little too much (laughs) and I find the severity of the moment and said something I shouldn't have said or didn't, you know, and didn't appropriately arise, rise to a challenge for, more less for myself, but like more for like people, you know, who kind of needed me to, to, to provide a certain level of emotional support or empathy that for whatever reason, I couldn't in one moment. I know that's sort of a vague answer. Um, uh, but I'm certain I have not risen to every challenge that I've been offered in my life, obviously.
3: Sure, sure. Well, I'm not sure about obviously, but, but okay. Um, Lee, uh, what is your greatest regret?
1: Um, you know, I've, I've thought a lot about um regretting saying no to doing things with my father that he asked me to do before he died because I had that sort of impenetrable sense that no one's ever going to die at that time in my life and you know he had lived and worked in China he asked me to go to China with him I said no um because I was too busy doing whatever my 25 year old self wanted to do um you know, and later having lost other people in my life and thinking back on choices that I made. Um, it just, I think everyone goes through this. If you get older, you 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 get so sensitive to, hey, of the handful of people I want to spend time with, you know, when they call me up and they want to take a walk, um, that is more important than getting through my emails or whatever other thing I'm doing. Um, so I, when I think about regrets, they're, not spending more time with people who are no longer with us.
2: Right. Um, Lee, how would you like to die?
1: Um, I know how you'd like to die.
4: We have a deal that she's not allowed to die before I die. So okay. Right after she can go.
0: Elliot, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, but
1: Elliot has always liked um the T. E. Lawrence death, which is, you know, on the motorcycle, vaulting through the, you know, English countryside and
4: well, but there's I, one important caveat yeah. to that. And I'm like 95 years old.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. I'm
4: very old and like I'm just and then boom.
1: I, I and Lee's still with us at that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess the way I would answer that is I'd like to die knowing that the children or the people I love the most are okay. Mm -hmm. I remember I was with my father when he died and I remember just repeating to him, I'm going to be okay because I thought that that would be helpful. And I, I don't know if it was, but I'd like to feel, you like to feel that you're leaving the people that you love and they're okay. Mm
4: -hmm. Yeah, her answer, of course, is better than my motorcycle answer.
3: <laughs> better in what sense?
4: But what Lee said, well, yeah, more, more high, obviously more high-minded. Um, so I agree with what Lee said. But if I could know they're all okay, well, I'm 95 on my motorcycle, mm-hmm. plowed in, and you, you can be in the sidecar, or you can go the next day right after.
3: <laughs> I love all the I, next I day. She can hurl herself onto your funeral pyre. Yeah, where she wants to do it. Okay, this is the thirty-fifth question, Elliot. What is your motto?
4: Um, I'm too drunk to taste this chicken.
3: <laughs> as the as Colonel Sanders says, all right. This chicken. I'm too drunk to taste this chicken. Uh. The, Talladega Nights, The Legend of Ricky Bobby, it's really, a, so many lines in that movie, I think, are a good motto, but, yeah, as usually, you've pulled out the best one. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Lee, are you reflecting on other Will Ferrell masterpieces?
1: I just don't know them as well as Elliot. Um, My dad used to say this thing. I mean, if you knew him, he was the opposite of pretentious, but it sounds pretentious anytime anyone says anything in Latin. But he used to always say, temp in a, in, with a sort of sly smile, Tempus fugit, errant hick. And then, and then he would say, which as you know means, time flies, here we are. And many years later, when I wanted to use that in my book,
0: <laughs>
1: I... I discovered that's not what it means at all. I mean, Tempest fugit" is time flies, but they're on tick" does not mean "Here we are." But Daddy just held on to that, and he got a lot of mileage. <laughs> I think I probably used to say that. I think I was sly and slightly funny, um, but I need to. I think. I think. I think my motto is "Please." That's probably what I say more often than any other word. <laughs>
0: yeah.
3: Please, as in please, like, pre- bitch, like bitch, please.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Elliot and Lee, we have one more question we add to this podcast, which is, who would you like to hear from as a guest on this show? Anyone you can think of who you would like to hear respond to the same questions you just responded to?
1: Tom Stopper.
2: Wonderful.
4: Okay. (laughs) I mean, I I guess because I'm talking about Colonel Sanders' chicken. uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, Will Ferrell, yes. Or, or you guys should have you guys should have a Huggy on. He'd be great. He's great. He'd
2: be great. I, I was thinking when you said Shelby Foot, I remembered that I haven't seen Huggy in about two years or so, but I would love. He's so funny yeah, he's and ch- charming, and he has this. And Caroline, you love him because he's very Southern and identifies very strongly with this part of the country. You I think this. I feel must have met him, Carrie. Yeah, I
3: don't. I don't think I have. I, and I and I'm so dismayed
1: to know that maybe I missed the chance at something with the two oh, of you. No, no, no. You'll, you'll meet him again. I love him dearly, and he's, he's so southern and, and sweet. And we've spent a lot of time with him. And he also has this very, funny, charming, hard to describe quality where he'll, you know, come into the house and he'll say like, God, "Guys, I'm so sorry. I just, you know, I I was on the bus and." Um, and my friend, you know, had to get off, and you know, which friend, Huggy? Oh, Keith. Keith, who Huggy? Oh, Keith Richards. Keith, you're on the bus with Keith Richards. Oh, oh yeah. But anyway, <laughs> this is just because because you know Mick. Anyway, guys, let's make sandwiches. You know, he's yeah. just got this very. He's he's had the very. Um, he's just great. He's a
2: he's a great, he's a great, great. photographer. He has really 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 great. talented. We
1: have, Huggy took a picture of us. I'll send
2: it to you guys. Oh
1: please
0: do Yeah
3: oh maybe let's could we use that on our um, website for, for uh, your yeah. Yeah. joint pick? Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it'd be fun to have one of the two of you together. We'll, we have little thumbnails of people with their mini bios, but having uh, a joint picture would be great. you all thank you so much for doing this. I know t- time flies you were sweet to take the time and um, its. Tempos- Tempest
2: Fugit, here we are. Tempest Fugit, here we are, and we really appreciate it. And we also want to point out to the listeners so, 11 Days is your beautiful novel. And I think, Elliot, first
3: novel,
2: second novel, Red, White, Blue. Oh, Red, White, Blue, and then Red Dress in Black and White. That is Elliot's most recent novel. So we'll be sure that our listeners have access to find all these. um, Because one of the fun things about the podcast is we have such a range of guests, but to get to know you, um, uh, first, through your books, but now in person is really wonderful. So we'll make sure that listeners actually have a chance to find you on social media, et cetera, and get, uh, get to those books as well.
0: Thank, Thank you, you so guys. much.
2: It's, it's really a pleasure. Thank you. And now you have to go back. We're also really happy that you were able to find time away from your four children to spend <laughs> with us on zoom <laughs> and, and your dog Tuesday.
3: <laughs> Thank you. So All much. right. I'll see you guys Friday. Lots of love. Thank you for Great. doing this. Bye. Yeah, Bye. 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 Bye.
0: Bye.